Welcome to another episode of The Artistic Director. I am sitting here with Anne Sarate. 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 Uh, yeah. <laughs> I asked you right before we started, and I still got it wrong. Uh, Anne, how are you doing? I'm great. Thank you. Okay. So for the listener who doesn't know uh, who you are, can you give a brief history of your performance slash what led you to being uh, the Artistic Director of the Trinity Street Performance and the, uh, the what, what is the full title? The HBMG Foundation's National Winter Playwrights Retreat. It's a mouthful. <laughs> yeah, it is. Uh, yeah. Uh, sure, yeah. Um, I started off as an actor. Uh, my dad was a director, so I grew up in theater. And that was not my first uh, professional career. I was working, doing something else. Um, actually, I was working for a church when uh, Trinity Street Players was born. So um, I was working for the church, and they were doing this production of Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat, and I was like, uh, I can do that. <laughs> <laughs> and so I did, and afterwards the pastor approached me and was like, listen, um, I would be interested in hiring you uh, as an arts, essentially as an arts pastor for our church. And I was like, well, that's very interesting because you have this big empty storage area on the fourth floor of your church, mm -hmm. and I would be interested in turning that into a black box theater. And so the church is a fairly progressive, clearly artsy sort of church. And so they gave me $60,000 to build a black box theater, which I did, and, um, and uh, hired me on to be essentially an arts pastor. And so I did that for three years, and I founded Trinity Street Players, and uh, then I left the church and went into doing art full-time. During that process, I met Manuel, and we started the National Winter Playwrights Retreat in Creed, Colorado. And then uh, a couple years later, I got a call from the church again saying, we would like to hire you back as artistic director for Trinity Street Players. If you would be willing to work for us, we'd love that. And I said, well, if I can do it remotely, sure, because I have, I'm already artistic director of a of a playwrights retreat in Creed, Colorado, and I'd be happy to work in Austin as well if I can do it remotely with the exception of during productions. So uh, Trinity Street Players is one of only five or six venues in Austin, Texas. We have a huge venue crisis in the theater. So when Trinity Street Players is not performing, we rent the theater out to other theater companies. Austin has over 130 theater companies and only about five or six venues. So we have a real venue crisis in Austin. Whoa. <laughs> yeah, it's out of control. Um, you know, Austin has fallen victim to what a lot of cities in America have in that it's super cool and awesome and artsy. And so all the rich people moved to where the artists were yep. and um, artists can no longer afford to keep their spaces. So in the past year, we've lost two critical spaces to God knows condos, you know, who yeah. knows what um, now. And uh, those two companies are now, you know, just companies that are floating around like the oh, rest man. of so many companies. Mm -hmm. The toils of gentrification. Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. That's um, So I'm curious, what, what what do you think Trinity Street Players provides uh, to the community that the, the rest of the spaces don't? I had no idea about the, mm -hmm. the space crisis, so that's so interesting. Yeah, well, that's... I would say that that's our first contribution to this city of Austin arts is that we have a church randomly in downtown Austin that gives that built a black box theater and then offers that back to the arts community, which is really super. 
And actually, there's a new movement in Austin to try and find spaces within sacred places. This is nothing new, right? Like, in Europe, this is this is normative, right? And has been for, for centuries. But in America, we have this weird fundamentalism thing that has sort of taken over our culture. And so a lot of people associate um, the arts and science as being on one side of the yeah. spectrum and religion on the other. And that it just isn't the case all the time. There's a Unitarian church in Austin that has a stage that they use um, their their theaters called Paradox Players. They don't rent it out because it's kind of like a stage in a gymnasium type thing. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's not like an, an actual theater. But I think that there's a, now a new movement in Austin. Michael Fernstenfeld was talking to me about it, about trying to figure out how to create art in sacred spaces and find space for the arts within religious buildings. Wow. Mm-hmm. How do you, I know this is a big question, mm-hmm. but how do you go about doing that? I mean, I don't know. Ours, <laughs> mine sort of, it's not, I can't be prescriptive necessarily. That's you know, mine was like a, one of those right place, right time, right community, yep. you know, at a community that was already mindful of the arts and they saw a gift in me and I saw a gift they could give. <laughs> so it just kind of kept rolling like that. But I don't know. I mean, I think you get, you try and, you know, start from the ground. You identify um, churches, mosques and synagogues and other, or, you know, religious buildings that might be open to the arts. Identify which ones those are. Then maybe hold an information meeting or something like that. Uh Uh, gather all the facts about the uh, venue crisis in Austin, obviously present those facts and then, and then just see who would be, you know, who is interested in in more conversation. And I would say that from there, you know, you could potentially get a cooperative body going of, of people trying to work together to figure it out. You know, that's wow. That's Mm -hmm. awesome. I mean, that's, I don't know. That's just off the top of my head. I don't know. No, that was brilliant. Uh, (laughs) So so I'm going to transition into, there's a question that I ask every guest that I have on this podcast. Sure. And it's a big, ambiguous question. So feel free to answer it however you desire. Okay. Uh, But the question is simply, what is your artistic direction? Like in my personal life or in in which company or? (laughs) Yeah, either in your personal life or collaborating with, with a company. Well, uh, for example, in um, with HBMG Foundation and the National Winter Playwrights Retreat, I would say our artistic direction is um, is to find creative ways to engage the artists and the community. Uh, we do a lot of work of trying to break out of the boundaries of of disciplines and trying to uh, really integrate with the community. So for example, right now at the National Winter Playwrights Retreat, we have started a new project. Um, in So the NWPR takes place in a tiny town in Colorado called Cree, Colorado. Uh, we are a winter retreat um, because the town becomes very, very small in winter. And we, one of our focuses is to help the economy of that town. So when we bring 45 playwrights in in seven or eight weeks to a town of 200 people, that has a significant economic impact that it wouldn't in Austin or New York or Minneapolis or wherever. As a result of that, we have had people in the the town, you know, knows that that changes the economy. And we've had people say, how can we help? Now, this tiny town also happens to house a, a Lort Theater, Creed Repertory Theater. 
um, which is great, but they don't have a winter season. They don't have the pull in the economy. They don't provide the employment, et cetera. Um, and so what we have found is some of the locals asking us how they can help us be successful in the wintertime because they know that when we're successful, they're successful, which is a very interesting model. And so we came up with this idea of Be the Art Creed, and um, Manuel's daughter, Katrina Sadate, is a portrait artist out of Portland, Oregon. And in the course of a year, she is painting almost all of the 200 residents of Creed, Colorado. And um, in a year, we will have all the paintings done, and we will have a gallery showing of them in Creed, in the largest building that we can find, of course. <laughs> and, um, and then we're going to let all the individuals in Creed buy back their art. But it's going to be pay what you can. So if you can afford $10, great. That's what you can afford. Or if you can afford $10,000, awesome. And all of that money will go back into the HVMG Foundation, which will go directly to bringing in more playwrights. So it's an economic model that is self-sustaining, really, right? Because the locals know that no matter no matter who they are and no matter what their resources are, they are art, right? And they have been painted. And these people who um, would not potentially not normally consider themselves to be artists or muses for art are are becoming art. And then that they that everyone can participate in in buying back their their art, which then goes directly into a fund, which they already know benefits them, is an is an interesting model. And so, for me, we're also in a crisis in America of this huge disconnect between communities and not being able to speak to one another. And uh, I agree. And I think that the arts is one way that we can actually unify people through conversation and things like that. And so, I actually think that. So Be the Art Creed is one of the ways that I feel like we are watching that happen. You know, I could have a guy with a Confederate flag on a T-shirt drive up on his motorcycle to my house and say, are you the one taking pictures? Will you take a picture of me on my bike to send to that girl that's painting everybody? You know, that's something, right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, to have people who aren't normally patrons of the theater there in town come up and say, how can we help? That's that's something. It's it's changing the conversation. And so I think that's vitally important is how to engage your community and um, your culture and conversation through the arts. Same thing at Trinity Street Players. We try to do we do a combination of new work and kind of classics. We just finished doing a newish sort of work called Danny Girl, which is a musical by Kuman and Diamond. And it is about two kids with cancer, which you think would be really down and <laughs> and horrible and awful to attend. But it's a hysterical musical, and our audience response to it was really great. And again, it's that thing of like, w- what if we could talk about difficult conversations in our communities, in our schools, in our churches, in our cities, you know, where we, we could talk about difficult things like cancer, death, sex, (laughs) all these things that are hard to talk about and that we don't do a good job of in our families and in our churches and in our schools. What if we could dialogue about those things in a way that was healthy and that was continual? You know, maybe we wouldn't be so terrified of death, or maybe we would look at death differently. Maybe 
you know, we wouldn't have the staggering teen pregnancy and uh, abortion rates that we have in America. You know, like, what if we had healthy conversations about these things? And so, again, for me, art is a perfect medium to do that, right? Mm-hmm. I was performing in Ragtime once, and I remember the director said that uh, he had heard a story about somebody who had gone to see Ragtime, and afterwards he came out, and his comment was, I didn't know I was racist until I saw this musical. You know, because art has a way of, of showing us things that a lecture, a political meme, a speech, whatever, can't, can't reach through. Art has a way of touching people um, that is unique to other communication mediums, I think. And so, and so I guess art, my personal artistic direction is how do you tell stories that um, engage and challenge and inspire and comfort people that's wow that's there's a lot to unpack there but I'm really interested in this idea because I completely passionately agree that we are in we have this crisis right now of not being able to engage in a dialogue that is necessary uh, with people that we don't necessarily 100% agree with and we've found these little bubbles and i think it stems from the base emotion of fear Uh, and i think theater is a way to overcome that fear my question is then how do you how do you get a a audience member or a member of the community that you were saying that wouldn't maybe necessarily engage in the theater how do you attract them how do you overcome their fear of coming to the theater to present to them an idea is that that's a pretty big like that is broad. a big. That is a big. And it's it, like solve the problems of the world. <laughs> yeah. Okay. In five minutes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that's a hard question. I mean, at Trinity Street Players, we have an extra problem because we actually have the opposite problem. How do I get liberal thespians to come to walk through the doors of a Baptist church up to the fourth floor to get to a theater? Right. That has just as many biases as getting somebody who doesn't isn't engaged in theater to come into. A, a theater building, right? So that's kind of interesting. I don't, I don't know that I have the right answer, or even a answer for that. But you know, like I said, we, I think part of it is listening to the community. You know, we never would have come up with be the art if people in town hadn't come up to us and said, "Hey, what can we do to help? You know, is there something we can attend? Can we go see one of these readings? You know, all of our readings for our playwrights are private." readings, they're cold readings, um, they're meant to serve the playwright, so we aren't open to the public with regard to that, but we just started thinking. And then my stepdaughter texted me and said, hey, there's this new app that, where you can upload pictures and, and draw them, and I'm working on my portraits right now, but Portland people all kind of look the same. <laughs> Could you send me some pictures of some people who aren't young and beautiful? And I was like, ding! Yeah. You know, oh, I can do that. And not only that, and then, you know, that from there, that conversation spawned of like, what if we did this? What if we did this? What if we did this? You know, uh, so I would say listening to um, your community. When I choose a season for Trinity Street Players, I have two communities I'm thinking about. Not only am I thinking about the city of Austin, um, but I'm also thinking specifically about First Baptist Church of Austin and that community as well. And, you know, they have been every no one is unaffected by cancer, in in my opinion. And so. With, with that in mind and with those specific people in mind and families who have lost members, 
or who have battled cancer and been able to stay with them longer, you know, those people are in mind when I'm, when I'm choosing my, my season as, you know, in addition to, uh, of course, the city of Austin and the larger climate. I, I, after last fall, I admit that all I wanted to do was political plays, (laughs) (laughs) you know, didn't we all? (laughs) Yeah. uh So it's, it's just a balance. I think of listening to your community and of finding art that challenges you as well. And ultimately that will challenge other people too, you know? Yeah. Uh, I'm interested in the, uh, in the playwright, the national winter playwrights retreat, retreat. Thank you. (laughs) Uh, in Creed. What what is the structure that you set up? So you bring about 45 playwrights. Last year we brought 45. We have, um, seven weeks where we bring in playwrights in one of two ways. We either bring in a, what we call a group, a co-op of playwrights, which can be up to 12 playwrights and or playwriting teams. So it could be a playwright and a dramaturg or a playwright and a composer or a playwright and an actor. And um, we bring up to 12 people or teams for a co-op and they are all together one week. Or we have solo or duet weeks where we just bring in one playwright or two playwrights. But we offer all, regardless of co-op or a solo or duet week, we offer everyone the same thing. We offer them a chance to get away. Um, If they can get to Creed, um, then we will provide housing for them. And we offer them a cold reading of their script, um, either at the beginning, the middle, or the end of the week. So depending on where they are in the process. We have had playwrights show up on Sunday, start a script on Monday, and have a reading on Friday of however many scenes they finished that week, right? <laughs> it's a beautiful location. It's at We're at almost 9,000 feet in a national forest. So it's, it's really beautiful there. Because we are a dry climate, it doesn't have the cold of the New York or Kansas yeah. City or what, you know, even Austin. I think Austin is, clearly Austin is not colder than Creed, Colorado. But, <laughs> but sometimes, you know, 14 degrees feels better in Colorado than... 47 degrees feels in Austin, in my opinion, because it's a very dry climate. So it's a beautiful place. We do offer Jeep tours of the mountain where we'll take people up and show them the surrounding area. The theater graciously offers, Creed Rep offers to give playwrights a tour of the theater and they can, you know, meet the staff and stuff like that. But other than that, the playwrights are on their own. They have the freedom to do what they need to do for themselves, you know, whether that is hunker down and write whether that is calling us up and saying, hey, will you meet me for coffee or lunch? I just wanted to bounce ideas off of somebody, you know, or whether that's walking up and down the canyon, you know, clearing their head. So our structure is very open, but what distinguishes us from a lot of playwright playwright retreats or intensives is that our focus is the playwright. So when playwrights submit to or apply to be a part of our retreat, we do not read any script submissions. Playwrights introduce themselves personally and professionally. And from that, um, we make the decision on who to invite down. We uh, do prioritize women and people of color. I am a woman. My husband is a person of color. (laughs) So that is priority for us. But after that, we diversify based on sexual orientation, location in the country, level of experience. We try to vary our level of experience as well. We do not take the top 45 most produced playwrights and we try to vary it up. So anyway, that's, that's a little bit about our program and how we function. That's awesome. And Mm -hmm. that's, it's, it's so important to promote uh, representation in theater because that's how you reach out to a community. Right. 
So how do you, in Trinity Street Players, is there um, is there a way that you you go about uh, making sure that every community is is represented in that theater? At the National Winter Playwrights Retreat? Yeah, no, no, I'm sorry, at the Trinity Street. Uh, oh, uh, yeah, sort oh, of I'm bringing sorry. it over yeah. to your other. Okay, switch. Uh, I'm sorry. Can you ask the question again? Then I was um, still up in so, Colorado. So I just, I just, <laughs> How do you how do you promote a, a full representation of the human experience at Trinity Theater? Like, in in what ways, in terms of choosing productions, choosing the, uh, the people? Uh, I personally try to choose. We like I said, we do new work and kind of classics. So we do Our Town and then and Into the Woods, and then we do um, new pieces. I try to choose. Uh, last year, we did a script called Lone Riders by Carol Wright Krause, um, who is from Missouri. So I try to choose to give opportunity to voices that perhaps are not otherwise heard. But that's hard to do in a canon that is mostly white men, uh, to be honest. And trying to find a balance of what people will attend and and what people will not attend. I try to hire as many women as possible, (laughs) if truth be told. Uh, So for Danny Girl, our artistic team was all women except for two men. Sounds slash props designer was a man and my set designer was a man, but everybody else were from director to stage manager to lights to techies were women. Nice. So it's it's a balance, you know, and I try to diversify in casting, but again, the you know, that it's it's just who walks through the door, right? <laughs> like I can do as much recruiting as I as I can try to do, but again it it takes walking in the door, it takes managing schedules. It you know there's it takes competing with the larger theaters who pay more, yeah. or perhaps don't pay more but have better exposure. Hmm. So, I I think that being conscious of it is step one. Actively recruiting people who haven't had as many opportunities is is another big one. But ultimately, you can only work with people who want to work with you, right? Yeah. And so but any level of consciousness that you can have towards that. We are a theater that's run by two women. We have uh, myself, and then our executive director is Sarah Zarang, and she's also clearly female, so it's a a good team. Yeah, so this is a perfect transition. I'm really interested, uh, when you're the artistic director, I believe that one of your responsibilities uh, that's not explicitly stated is to sort of cultivate a, the culture of your theater. To, sure. So you, you have a, your theater entity and you have, um, w- when people come in, I think whether or not they've explicitly or implicitly stated it to themselves, they have their own artistic direction, quote unquote. Sure. And so I think one of the challenges, and I'm curious what you have to say about it, is how do you, as an artistic director, cultivate a culture that still honors everyone's uh, individual artistic direction while giving a solid, clear, well-defined artistic direction to the theater entity itself, mm-hmm. I think you hire good directors. You hire um, you hire people uh, who have a similar vision and work ethic to you. At Trinity Street Players, we try to distinguish ourselves by um, uh, really creating a community for a production that happens fairly naturally uh, in shows, all, generally speaking. But we do try to spoil our actors and our the people who are helping out with production of, you know, like one of the things we do is a lot of times on longer days we'll provide dinners or on Sundays uh, we always have, on Sundays before performances we have a church member who will provide lunch for the cast. And so the cast can come 
a half an hour before call time and and get to eat before their show. So, you know, trying to find little ways that we're able to spoil the people who are essentially donating a lot of time and energy because, you know, the pay is not <laughs> substantial. I mean, I do what I can and I and I I'm proud of what of what we are able to give our artists, but ultimately it's trying to create a community within the people spoiling them and you know in the in our contract that they sign i i state very explicitly how the theater and and thus the church who is our financial backer for the most part will our policy on sexual harassment on discrimination you know on things like that and so the first thing that the that our team members receive are is of course information on that but other than that i mean i think it's just it's just talking it's just networking it's one-on-one you know we did i did write a uh Oh, I don't know what you call it, but you know, the since the election, there's been lots of things popping up. Like uh, this household believes Black Lives Matter, science is real, blah blah blah. You know, or like there's a mug. Facebook is always advertising mugs or signs that I can buy that state my political affiliation, sort <laughs> of. You know, through these mantras, which is great. And so I wrote one for for our theater to hang outside the theater, and it said. You know, in this theater, and then in parentheses it says, and this church, we believe that, you know, all love, that LGBTQ love is love, that black lives matter, that uh, no human is an alien, uh, separation of church and state is essential, that disabled voices are critical voices, right? And I just went through a list of, of things that that I believe and that I try to create a culture of for within our theater community and also so that patrons feel safe too coming yeah. there, right? Because yeah. it is tricky to step into a church in this in this day and age. They're terribly hateful places. Yeah. <laughs> and not all of them are. I mean, they're filled with people, right? Like, it's, it's the same thing if you go to school or if you go to work. Like, you know, there's terrible people everywhere, yeah. truth be told. But <laughs> I do want my patrons and my artists to feel safe and to feel welcome and to know that uh who they are in their entire in their entirety their personal artistic direction are are welcome in our theater and and thus in our church yeah yeah that's so essential creating a safe space especially mm-hmm. yeah the liberal walking into a uh, into a church <laughs> yeah. there's so much there's a, there's such a weighted definition of what that means to that person sure so, Every, yeah everyone has their baggage yeah yeah exactly I, I think there's an interesting dynamic when uh, you are leading a project with your husband. Uh-huh. Uh, and so I'm, I'm just curious, because I don't really know this, but is there a way that you separate the professional slash personal uh, realm of things when you are leading? Or is it just yeah, one of the same? Yeah, that's a great question. No. No? Wow. We're, <laughs> uh, we, I think we work really well together. Yeah. And upon occasion, one of us messes up and you know, hollers at the other one or uses a, a personal dig that we know will get under the skin of the other one uh. in a, in a, in a quote unquote public place. I mean, everyone has, yeah, has oh that yeah. right. But oh yeah. I think that we work well together and I actually think the more we work together, the better off we do. So a lot of times cool. we noticed when we first began commuting between Austin and Creed, <clears throat> we would get down to Austin and where we didn't work in the same place. He has an IT company and I work at the theater. And so we would go our separate ways during the day. And, you know, it's hot in Austin and the traffic is horrible and there's a billion people everywhere. And 
we would come out, we were doing a lot more fighting in Austin. And I think that, that one of the reasons for that is that we weren't working together. Hmm. I think we do well when we work together. We uh, encourage each other. We enlighten each other. We brainstorm together just naturally through conversation, you know. And so that's how a lot of these ideas are born. The National Winter Playwrights, it's not like we intended to do that. That just was one conversation that led to another that led to another. And then we were like, oh, duh, we have to do this, <laughs> you know. And so uh, for me, it's a natural fit. Like if you're with a partner who you're good with on a personal level, for me, it's also someone I'm good with on a professional level. I'm sure that is not true for everyone. But for us specifically, I think that we admire each other a lot and are um, inspired by each other. And so it it's very helpful. We're, we're also very different. So yeah, we're also very different. I'm, I'm very organized. He's very vision oriented, you know, but we're both great in, in the arts. And so on stage and behind the stage or whatever. So, so it's just, uh, I don't know for us, it's, it's kind of a special thing. We work very well together, both professionally and personally. That's awesome. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I have one more uh, sure. idea that I just want to explore that I've been curious because th- there is such a strange political, social climate, uh, and you've traveled. I'm, I'm assuming quite a quite a bit mm-hmm. just doing theater. I think when you enter into a theater performance, you are sort of implicitly stating, "Here, audience, this is what you should see." If you're if you're presenting a uh, a play to them, I, I'm guess, I guess the question is. W- what do you think the modern day audience is looking for in theater? Oh Lord, <laughs> I have no idea. I mean, I think that varies, right? Uh, from small town to large town, from cities that have universities in them to more rural communities. Um, I, I really think it varies a lot. You know, I had a friend who was in the national tour of cabaret and she played Sally Bowles and she tells the story of, I think it was Waco, that they had stopped to do a sh- the show in Waco for several days or several weeks or whatever it was. And uh, she was at the grocery store and somebody came up to her who had seen her in the show and said, I just think you should know, I do not approve of abortion. I don't approve of what you did. And my friend was like, you know, that's not me, right? <laughs> like, that's my character, not me. You know, and that just goes to show that like, Audiences will be what audiences will be, you know, and national tours don't have the luxury of choosing, of exactly choosing a show for a community, right? Local theaters and regional theaters and community theaters, that's what their job is, is to pick the right shows for the community at that time. But I I don't know what audiences are looking for. I think right now we are reflecting a little bit of the 1930s in that we are looking for relief we are looking for distraction because I think that the world that we live in is becoming increasingly depressing and oppressive and scary. And so I think like the 1930s and, and Annie and, you know, things like that and movie palaces, you know, I think that, <laughs> I think that it, to a large extent, that's um, one of the things that we're looking for right now. I don't know if that's a good thing or not. I'm not commenting on that, but I do feel that in general. Hmm. That's very, very interesting. 
if someone is online and trying to find you or any of your theaters or the playwriting retreat, mm-hmm. uh, are there plugs that you have or places that they can go uh, to sure. find out about this? Sure, you can this? go to trinitystreetplayers.com. You can go to hbmgfoundation.org. Or you can um, look us up on Facebook, of course, and Instagram and things like that. Perfect. All right. Uh, and I like ending my podcast with this. Can I get uh, one recommendation of anything at all from you? It can be a book or a movie or a quote or a way of life. Just a single recommendation of anything. Mm. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Yeah. Okay, okay, okay. Let me think. Let me think. Uh, recommendation. I mean, there's so many things <laughs> right now. I, I love the book Their Eyes Were Watching God by Zora Neale Hurston. My two current musical fads are Dear Evan Hansen and Come From mm. Away. Come From Away is absolutely gorgeous. It's pure joy. I personally think it should have won for Best Musical at the Tonys, but Dear Evan Hansen is also wonderful. I would recommend not drinking soda pop. I think it's really bad for you. That's right. Wow. <laughs> I love that. Stick with water. Uh, I don't know. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. Okay, that's awesome. great. <laughs> right. And thank you so, so much for, for sitting down. You had awesome stuff to say. You're welcome. Thank you. Uh, you can find this podcast on Facebook and SoundCloud. And listener, please, please, please have an excellent rest of your day.